to begin I'd like to begin by saying what a privilege it is to be here with all of you. Thank you. I want to start by reading a, a piece I wrote a, a while ago for the journal Inquiring Mind. It's a short little piece called Please Identify Yourself. Recently I heard someone on the radio explaining the new crime of identity theft. And I immediately thought, yes, rob me please. (laughs) Take my identity and leave the cash. (laughs) I can regard my entire Dharma path as a matter of shifting identities. And it all started with me trying to run away from myself, the sentimental histrionic drama of meanness. The Buddha says that the false conceit of I or self is the bane of our existence, and I was indeed relieved when I began to see through the various membranes of personal identity. But what really surprised and delighted me is what I saw on the other side. It turns out I am not who I thought I was. I'm much, much more than that. For the most part, we each live in our own story, and it's pretty much the only one we tell, as though we have a scratch in our mental record, and the same lines get repeated over and over again about my finances, my friends, my family, my stuff. It's too bad, because while each of us is lost in our private drama, we don't notice that we are taking part in grand epics and heroic, noble projects. For instance, even while reading email or shopping for socks, we continue to operate as breathing cells in the great body of life on Earth, part of a fascinating multi-billion-year experiment in biology and consciousness. Of course, in your own story, you, you are always the star. But in the big story of life on Earth, you are just a bit player. In fact, an itty-bitty bit player. <laughs> just a walk-on part. But that's the point. You can disappear into this grand perspective like walking into a Chinese landscape painting and getting swallowed up by the deep gorges of bamboo forest and eternal sky. You can move out of the personal into increasingly large circles of inclusion and identity until finally you can point in any direction and say, along with the great Indian mystics, Tatvam Asi, I am that. I am that. So the subject this evening is identity and liberation. I sometimes think all of the Buddha's teaching can be summarized in a knock-knock joke. (laughs) The disciples come to the master and they say, and the master answers with the number one spiritual question, who's there? And if you don't get the joke, you have to be reborn over and over and over again until you do get it. Spiritual life is really a question of identity. All the main traditions have highlighted this question. The Hopi say you must always ask, who am I? Socrates said, know thyself. The Hindu Advaita Vedanta masters say, who is it that's asking this question, who am I? 
you know, they'll keep pulling the rug out from under you. In Zen, they have colorful ways of asking the question, who is it that's going in and out of these six sense doors? Or who is it that's dragging this corpse around? The Buddha said, true happiness can only be found by eliminating the false conceit of I or self. Unfortunately, we are all born with a case of mistaken identity. Believing that we are in here and the world is out there. And we pretty much go through life believing we are acting on the world and rarely do we notice that the world is moving us, moving through us. Uh, A caveat, all life seems to have some sense of self, of itself and the boundary between itself and the world. It's almost the definition of life is to have some sense of boundary and and, uh, integrity. The Buddha's great breakthrough was to see through the membrane of self and to realize that we co-arise with all things. He gave us a new story, a new identity. I think it's interesting to note that it didn't always feel this way to be somebody. The clothing of self wasn't always this tight. If you would have asked a desert nomad or a medieval peasant a few hundred years ago, what do you want to do with your life? They would have no idea what you're talking about. You do what you're born into. There's no sense of of individual autonomy and, and agency. There's no question about it. You do what you do and, and you have your life. Rollo May, a great uh, psychologist of the last century, said the experience of self has its own history. He wrote, Americans cling to the myth of individualism as though it were the only normal way to live, unaware that it was unknown in the Middle Ages and would have been considered psychotic in classical Greece. There have been some studies of early Greek literature, and uh, it's been concluded that the early Greeks thought all the voices in their heads were the voices of gods, which we would now consider a kind of schizophrenia. Of course, now we regard all the voices in our heads as our voices, which is its own kind of madness. We seem to have come to an uncomfortable extreme at this moment, an extreme of individualism here in the land of personalized license plates. We've lost what the anthropologists called participation mystique, a sense of belonging to a community or a wider wider existence, a, a part of nature, part of a tribe. And our individualism is suffocating. It's not only 
sort of the bottom line of our our economic and political and ecological crisis, it's also the source of so much of our unhappiness, the feeling of isolation, separateness. You're on your own. You make it or break it on your own. And then, you, of course, we compare ourselves to the people on the media, beautiful people, and, uh, you know, you can never be rich enough or good-looking enough or... Uh, powerful enough or happy enough to match what you see as the the desired image of uh, being an individual. We live in what's been called the culture of narcissism. And it's ironic because also right now in our time, in our civilization, science is giving us a whole new picture of who we are in the scheme of things and telling us that we are intertwined with all and everything. In physics, they call it entanglement. You know, you move your hand and the entire universe is involved. Our new story tells us we are made out of the elements, the basic elements created by the explosion of supernova in the early history of the universe, that we are quite literally Stardust. We are golden. <laughs> Just want to see if you could get over that. Thich Nhat Hanh says, once I was a cloud, once I was a rock. This is not poetry, this is science. Our new story says we are related to every being who has ever lived related through this miracle molecule DNA composed of four chemical compounds and depending on how they're arranged in these long strings of coded information, the DNA will contribute to the growth of a giant sequoia or a frog or a, a, a rose or a human being. It's, it's a magic kind of, mysteriously magic kind of substance. It separates life from non-life. And uh, so in some sense we are all Cell brothers and cell sisters, you know. Can you dig it? You know what I'm saying. You know what I'm saying. I'm uh, I'm on a campaign to uh, create a new acronym to make DNA, which is you know should be honored and revered in some way, to give it a new uh, new meaning. Every time you see or hear the letters DNA, think divine natural abundance. Kind of, kind of lifts it up out of the deoxyribonucleic acid, you know. Ah, <laughs> uh, not me. <laughs> and what's really interesting is that we're now discovering from the evolutionary biologists that we are created out of all the life that came before us shaped and, and put together by all that life. Uh, one of the most uh, important discoveries of the 20th century was made by Dr. Paul McLean at the National Institute of Mental Health, studying the evolution of the brain and realized that we don't have a brain. We have three brains, and they grow in us in the same order that they grow, grew in evolution. 
so that in the embryo we first get a brain stem, also known as the reptilian brain, and then we get the limbic system or the mammalian brain, and then we get the new human brain or neocortex. And one brain doesn't override the other brains. They are very intricately interconnected. And there's growing serious research to indicate that we use our new human brain mostly to make excuses for the behavior generated by the other two brains. that we are not so much rational animals as we are rationalizing animals. (laughs) So we're getting this whole new story about who we are and where we came from and different from all the old stories we've been telling. But the new story can sort of lie rusting in the neocortex, you know, and... uh, not have much impact on how we feel about our lives and how we behave towards each other or towards the environment. How can we take this new understanding and information and integrate it and make it part of the place we live from? And that's where the Dharma comes in. That's where this meditation practice we're doing comes in. The Buddha said... Buddha was, you know, the first scientist, a great scientist. He, his method was to be as objective as possible about oneself as the subject. Uh, develop this quality of mindfulness. And then go into the body and into the mind and begin exploring and ask yourself, do I own any of this? What is its origin? What is its cause? Where does it come from? In a a process of trying to discover an answer to who am I? That mindfulness, the opposable thumb of consciousness, reaching out and looking and looking and studying oneself. That's part of what we're doing And another part of what we're doing is simply incorporating this new understanding, whether we know it or not, that I think is what's happening. Consider the wisdom you can acquire through mindfulness of breath. Actually, a new identity. And I'll tell you what's been happening for me over... Uh, the many years of my practice. First, of course, using breath as a concentration object. Great place to put your attention, stabilize your mind, your, your, your focus. But one of the first lessons that I learned uh, watching my breath, paying attention to my breath, was that I'm not breathing. It's breathing. Breath, I'm not, you know... Uh, Half the time, I'm not paying attention to my breath. Actually, 99% of the time, I'm not paying attention to my breath, and it's going on, and it's happening. And then, you know, I put my attention there, and there's the breath. The breath is happening on its own. In fact, if I tried to stop breathing, I would faint and fall over, and breath would continue. You know, it's like... (laughs) 
life got into me and wants me to keep going, keep living. I think Descartes should have said, I breathe, therefore I am. Because we can breathe without thinking, but we can't think without breathing. So over the years, I've begun to feel breath at the center of my existence. My identity has begun to shift. And, and I've, every time I come back to my breath, I'm reminded that I'm alive. Uh, a fact that, of course, I would answer, yeah, sure, I'm alive. But when I come back to the breath, I begin to feel it. I am alive. I'm one of the live ones. That's, not my, that's at the center of my being, this aliveness. And with a little bit of reflection, you can realize that your breath connects you to all the other life of the planet, especially the plant kingdom, as you exchange gases, uh, that you are a breathing cell in this single breathing organism that we call Gaia, the earth, the life of the earth. Gaia actually breathes, you know, it, uh, there's an excess of oxygen in the sunlight side and, and uh, carbon dioxide in the other side, and then even daily it breathes, and we're part of the breath of the earth. And in recent years, I've more and more begun to regard the breath as a sign of the mystery inside of me. As Kabir said, the breath within the breath. What is that? Where is that? Who gave it to me? Uh, We get approximately 15 million breaths in an average life. Have you been counting? I hope. You know which million you're on? And just being aware of the breath, just continually bringing the mind back again and again, it begins to drop my identity down from the story of my life to the fact of my life. And it makes me part of all the, all the breathing life on the planet. A similar identity lesson came with mindfulness of the body. I started uh, my whole Dharma path with S.N. Goenka, who passed uh, two weeks ago. Uh, great teacher. And uh, he taught the body scan, where you move the mind down through the body over and over again and feel the sensations of the body. And I remember vividly doing that, moving my mind through my body, feeling the sensations, and him sitting up in front and chanting, Anicca, Anicca. And you start to feel the whole body dissolving. Uh, you know, it just, it just becomes a mass of tingling sensations after, you know, a while, a few months of doing the practice. And you begin to realize the body's not a thing. It's a process. And it is, it is in continual change. It is a continual phenomena. 
I also, as I began to pay attention to my body, also, let me just go back for a minute, the anicca, the impermanence of this body and really realizing it in that way and getting really deep inside. I mean, I don't think I was on a subatomic level or anything. I mean, who knows what I was feeling, but there was no solidity there. But it reminds me of what Darwin said. He said, all species are changing, which was a really shocking thing when he said it and, and, uh, and proved it. People thought that all species were kind of the way they are now, always, and would always be the way they are now. And the evidence is that they won't be, and that this kind of being that we so cherish and embody will likely evolve into something else at some point. You're not too attached (laughs) to our species staying the same. Unlikely. So, as I paid attention to my body, I really began to realize that it had a life of its own. It would get hungry when it wanted horny when it wanted, sore when it wanted, without consulting me, you know? It, it wasn't mine. I really didn't own it. And I didn't choose it. I don't remember a catalog of choices being offered. You know, would you like eyes in the front and the back? Would you like to swim, fly, or walk as your primary means of locomotion? No, you just get the standard issue, human, biped, mid-sized mammal, upright. Go forth. (laughs) The Buddha said, and I'm always astounded by this statement, the body is not mine or anyone else's. It has arisen due to causes and conditions For now it should be felt. Not mine or anyone else's. It has arisen due to causes and conditions. And if you believe in evolution, the causes and conditions are the elements of nature and the forces of nature acting on life, which keeps adapting in order to stay alive and and creating new appendages and new camouflage and new ways of sensing as a survival means. And so it's sort of like nature is an artist and keeps carving different forms out of of the living mass of the planet. Causes and conditions. Studying evolution, I found uh, some some of the causes. I I just love doing this. I'm, I'm trying to make a list of the reason for everything. There's a reason for absolutely everything, and, you know, what else is there to do? Uh, The story of evolution is our collective autobiography. Each of us starts life as a single cell, the shape of an egg. Once the egg is fertilized, the DNA code guides it through the history of life on Earth. 
the single cell grows into a multi-celled sphere, into a tubular worm-like body. The embryo grows rudimentary fins, gills, webbed fingers, toes, features of reptiles and amphibians as we cycle through the DNA of our ancient ancestors. Even after we start to grow arms and legs, we resemble the embryos of pigs and rabbits. It happens in the warm sea of the womb, and at birth we repeat the exodus from the ocean and land in the world. The origin of heads is very interesting. <laughs> I mean, we, we are so identified with our heads, right? Heads are us. <laughs> well, the first heads appeared on these uh, jellyfish-like marine creatures who, uh, who began to, to grow extra clumps of cells around the mouth so that the mouth could be manipulated more easily and, and handily. And then the senses started growing up, you know, to see where the food was and who wanted to make you food. And they all grew up around that mouth and the... And that was the head. There was a head. And that's still the plan, still the body plan. And in fact, we share the body plan with almost all other creatures, a long tube-like body with appendages coming out for mobility and the senses on one end and the mouth on one end and the stomach and the plumbing inside there. And, the, you know, the insects, everybody's got this body plan. Nature found a great way to work and kept that plan over, used it over and over again. Anatomist uh, Richard Owens in the mid-1800s published a classic monograph called On the Nature of Limbs. And the pattern to our skeleton is shared by many species. You take your arm, it's got one bone in the upper arm, and then two bones in the forearm, a bunch of little bones at the wrist, and then a series of five rods that make up the finger. The same arrangement of bones exists in all creatures with limbs, either win, wings, flippers, fins, or hands. After Owen's study, Darwin came out with an explanation for the, the, the similarities. The reason human arms and bird wings or human legs and frog legs share the same pattern of bones is because we have a common ancestor. Who might that be, you wonder? Well, I've just been reading this wonderful book by Richard Dawkins. And um, he says, take a journey with me. Go back 4,000 great-grandfathers. You know, we all have four, uh, a grandfather 4,000 great-grandfathers back. And you'll probably, and you've got a picture of this, this being, and he, he probably a little odd-looking, odd-shaped skulls, probably somebody your grandmother would never mate with, you know. <laughs> but then you keep going back, and you keep going back, and if you go back 150 million grandfathers, which we all can do, and we had a picture, it would be a picture of a fish. That's part of our lineage. It's part of the line that we come out of. Recently, there's been all these um, stories about 
our body being composed of 90% other life. You heard about that? Uh, many hundreds of species of microbes, bacteria, about a hundred trillion of them are right now making, uh, having a great time in your stomach. Hundred more, more living beings in your stomach right now than all the humans who ever lived on planet Earth. They have houses, churches. They have a whole. <laughs> they have a whole civilization in there. There's some. There's some speculation that bacteria invented humans as a moving feedlot. <laughs> Get a tour of the neighborhood, and you know, plenty to eat. The great molecular biologist Lynn Margulis says, our concept of the individual is purely arbitrary. Each of us is a walking ecosystem. Yeah, this is, a, this is shocking. My body's 10% human tissue, 90% other species of life. If you wanted to take ownership of your body, you'd have to clean it up a bit. So I wanted to read you what the Buddha said about owning this body. He said, monk's form is non-self. For if monk's form were self, this form would not lead to affliction and it would be possible to determine form. Let my form be thus. Let my form be not thus. You can imagine, let my, my form be like this or like that. But because form is non-self, form leads to affliction, and it's not possible to, de to determine form. Let my form be thus. Let my form not be thus. He says that almost about, about all the aggregates, the senses, the feelings, everything. You're not really in charge of it. Do you own it? Who owns it? It has arisen due to causes and conditions. The noted neuroscientist Antonio Damasio claims that over millions of years, our brains have learned how to create constantly changing maps of our own body and the environment and the body as it interacts with the environment in order that we may move through the world without hurting ourselves. And according to Damasio, as these maps kind of communicate with each other, they tell a continuous story of our organism as it moves through the world, creating a basic sense of self. That our sense of self grows out of this map making that we use for our survival and for our, for our ability to, to live in the world. So, you let go of yourself, by the way, at your own risk. It's, a, it's not something we take responsibility for here at Spirit Rock. It's, <laughs> 
in the body scan, um, as I was doing meditation, I also started to meditate on the second foundation of mindfulness, Vedana, you heard about from uh, Bonnie and Nikki yesterday and the day before. The basic feelings of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And I remember thinking, gosh, I can really feel my mammalian nature in seeing how much I want pleasant and I want pain to go away. You know, that my whole life is a matter of wanting pleasure and not wanting pain. It's sort of one of those duh moments, you know, it's sort of, that's what guides a a lot of our behavior and you can feel it. You can feel it in, in meditation. You become very, very much aware of it. Way before Freud, Buddha understood the primal instincts. He called them the underlying tendencies. When we... You know, when we touch pleasure, we want more. When we touch pain. And beginning to see this and realize that uh, that is sort of a built-in reactivity, in seeing it, we begin to free ourselves. This is a neuroscientist, Melvin Connor. The motivational portions of the brain, particularly the hypothalamus, have characteristics relevant to the apparent chronic nature of human dissatisfaction. Experiments suggest that our chronic internal state will be a vague mixture of anxiety and desire, best described by the phrase, I want, spoken with or without an object for the verb. It's that constant dissatisfaction that Nikki was talking about, you know. It's built in. It's built in. The great thing is that mindfulness is there. And we have discovered it and that we can actually begin to perhaps, at times, override the instincts. Have some, find some freedom. Find a little gap between the stimulus and reaction. Make it stimulus and response. As we meditate, we see the mental, emotional life pouring through us, all of our psychology, all of our stuff. Usually we're not aware of mind states. I wasn't at all until I began meditating. We're usually not aware of them because we are in them, we're caught in them. And, and can't see them, or and can't investigate. You know who who decided to be angry or sad at that to- at that moment. You begin to see as you're doing the practice how these mind states, these moods, sweep in like weather. And you know maybe somebody makes a random comment, or I sometimes find it myself depressed and then remi- remember that I haven't eaten for a few hours and I've got low blood sugar and, you know, but I'm totally identified with the depression if, if, I, if I'm not mindful.
It should be obvious that mind states, emotions are not ours. Because if emotions were yours, you'd be happy all the time, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you choose that? The latest scientific understanding is a very unromantic view of our cherished sentiments. In uh, his book, The Emotional Brain, the neuroscientist Joseph Ledoux says, emotions are nothing more than the name we give to feelings associated with basic survival functions, which he calls the four F's. I see that their minds go right there, you know. <laughs> Fighting, fleeing, feeding, and procreation. <laughs> so, in this understanding, anger or hatred are feelings associated with a protective instinct to protect our turf or our family with ferociousness or anger. Affection, an evolved aspect of the whole procreation family system. Or as Tina Turner said, what's love got to do with it? <laughs> this kind of understanding, I would say, is exactly what the Buddha would, would prescribe. To desentimentalize and demystify these uh, these mind states, these moods that come through. Not mine or me or mine, but part of this incarnation. Emotions as natural occurrences based on survival adaptations. You know, the limbic system, is the emotional seat of... Uh, the seat of all of our emotions has been around for about 200 million years. The neocortex, the analytic thinking mind, for about 200,000 years. As I you know, sit and meditate and become more and more aware of the movement of emotions, I feel like I'm really getting to know my mammalian self, that I'm gaining a kind of evolutionary wisdom that really speaks to my identity, to who I am. And I don't find it denigrating or in any way, uh, you know, negative. I feel... Great, I'm included in that category. I'm a mammal and I'm proud. <laughs> Say it loud. <laughs> I'm... The Samyutta Nikaya, the Buddha. Thus, any feeling whatsoever, past, future, or present, internal or external, blatant or subtle, common or sublime, far or near, every feeling is to be seen as it actually is with right understanding. This is not mine. This is not myself. This is not what I am. But perhaps the most profound shift over the years of meditation practice for me, it has been in my relation to my thinking mind. We're still friends. 
fact, we live together. <laughs> but we're no longer codependent. <laughs> I may have started, uh, may have been the, the impetus that got me on the cushion in the first place was uh, I realized that my mind had a heavy thinking problem. Would start thinking the minute I got up in the morning. Would keep thinking in the middle of the afternoon. Have to have a couple thoughts before it went to bed at night. It was a heavy thinker. It needed, it needed an intervention. And I'll never forget that first retreat, sitting down and really coming uh, to the stark reality that I'm not in control of it. You know, I'm sitting there trying to pay attention to my breath, and my mind is doing whatever it wants, you know, <laughs> fantasies, plans, uh, again, without consulting me. And it's such a shock. I think most people in the world never get to see that, that kind of up and close look at that. You know, they're totally, they totally believe that they're running the show and it's their thoughts and true believers. Thinking is not bad. We don't want to ever put the kibosh on it. It's one of, it's a great tool. Uh, it allows us to gather information, agree on certain signs and symbols, and pass the information among ourselves and into new generations. And thinking is a brilliant, brilliant adaptation. And uh, you know, but we we've kind of lost control of it, or if we ever had control of it. The Tibetan sage Tulku Ergen, the stream of thought surges through the mind of an ordinary person, often called dark diffusion. In this state, there's no knowledge whatsoever about who's thinking, where the thought comes from, where the thought disappears. One has not even caught the scent of awareness, and the person is totally mindlessly carried away by one thought after another. For the most part, we are completely identified with our thoughts. That's what our culture grades us on, our ability to take our thoughts and manipulate them, which is a, a, you know, a wonderful thing to be able to do. But rarely do we look at the process of thinking and, where again, where the thoughts come from and uh, where they go to and why they appear and who owns them. I think it's a little ironic. I spent the first half of my life learning how to think, and now I'm spending the second half of my life trying to learn how to ignore my thinking. What was I thinking? But we don't want to get rid of thoughts. We just want to expose the mind to itself. As a species, we've grown to believe our thinking makes us superior to the rest of creation. This is Charles Darwin from his secret notebooks. Why is thought, which is a secretion of the brain, deemed to be so much more wonderful than, say, gravity, which is a property of matter? It is only our arrogance, our admiration of ourselves. And Stephen Jay Gould says, an octopus doesn't go around being proud of its eight arms. <laughs> The Buddha himself saw the thinking mind as a sixth sense. Not that special. A way of reading and interpreting the world. 
like sight allows us to perceive events at a distance, to see events in time. Hold that thought. I find it liberating to view my thinking mind as a, as a survival tool and realize that through the history of humans and thinking humans, we've all been basically thinking the same kinds of thoughts. Uh, it helps to demystify and depersonalize. But imagine 20,000 years ago, our ancestors, what were they thinking? Uh, who's going on the hunt tomorrow? Who's watching the fire? Uh, what color should I paint my spear? I don't know. <laughs> now thoughts about our 501k or our love life, the grocery list. Basically, it's the same stuff. In fact, if you take some sessions of meditation, see if you can count how many of your thoughts have something to do with your survival. This is including your place in the pecking order, you know, which is part of that whole complex. So, what do we own? Who are we? If we're not the body, we're not the emotions, we're not the thoughts. Isn't there a little, little some person up there running the show? Isn't, that, isn't there a me in there? It feels so much like there is. Well, a few years ago, a Time magazine came out with a cover story uh, summarizing the latest brain research and neuroscience research. And the, the cover story was t titled, In Search of the Mind. And I'm sure many people were a little shocked to realize that it was lost. Uh, but the Time article concluded this way, and I had to write it down. Despite our every instinct to the contrary, consciousness is not some entity inside the brain that corresponds to self, some kernel of awareness that runs the show. After more than a century of looking for it, brain researchers have concluded that such a self simply does not exist. This is Time magazine <laughs> announcing that the self does not exist. Why wasn't there a nationwide panic? Uh, some kind of... It turns out our brain is this fascinatingly complex, beautifully designed, self-organizing system and does it all without a director. Neuroscientist Daniel Dennett you enter the brain through the eye, march up the optic nerve, round and round the cortex, looking behind every neuron, and then before you know it, you emerge into daylight on the spike of a motor nerve impulse, scratching your head and wondering where the self is. <laughs> I hope you can learn to be okay with the, the idea that nobody's home. <laughs> Ajahn Chah, when we examine all that we call mind, we see only a conglomeration of mental elements, not a self, 
feeling, memory, perception are all shifting through the mind like leaves in the wind. We can discover this through meditation. We can learn to not take it all so personally. Let life live through us. The disciple, Wiku, asked Bodhidharma, please help me to quiet my mind. Bodhidharma says, bring me your mind so I can quiet it. After a moment, Wiku said, but I can't find my mind. There, said Bodhidharma, now I've quieted your mind. Over the years, as my mind has grown more quiet at times, and I studied myself with mindfulness, I began to explore knowing itself behind the flow of all the phenomena. It seems there is this consciousness. The scientists don't know where it is or what it is. I don't know where it is or what it is. But it's there. I don't turn it on. You can do it. You don't turn it on, do you? You're always, you know, awareness always there. Don't turn it off. It's a mystery, again. It's like the breath, you know, it carries the mystery with it. The ability to know. Know of oneself and know of the world. Know of oneself in the world. Know of one's non-self in the world. Buddhists sometimes call it original mind or the true nature of mind. Then Tibetan Buddhists seem to deify this original mind, give it wondrous names like the, predicate, the predicateless primordial essence, the weaver of the web of appearances. And this is a great one. The outbreather and inbreather of infinite universes throughout the endless duration of time. <laughs> Pure consciousness, the ground of being. Whatever you call it, we all have this pure knowing mind. And sometimes you can see it through, in between the thoughts and the events, the phenomena of, of your practice as you're sitting there. Sometimes you can see it. Look at it. Just wonder, how did this happen? And as you meditate, realize your experience is not I, me, mind. It's the mammal condition living through you. It's the human condition living through you. Your joys and sorrows arise out of having a nervous system and a brain. And you can still love yourself. Love yourself to death. I have two mantras I'll offer. You can choose among them, between them. One is, I'm perfectly human. And it's only natural. Or you could switch it around and say, I'm only human, and it's perfectly natural. I think using the information and metaphors of modern biology, I find them to be a powerful, skillful means for liberation. As Joanna Macy, a dear friend and teaching colleague, says, we don't need to be liberated from life, we can be liberated through life. And as we come to see our, ourselves as part of this experiment of life on earth, we care more for other forms of life. We, we begin to feel the kinship we are breathing with 
all the life of the planet. We are feeling pleasure and pain and with, the, with the life of the planet. So meditation practice and deep ecology kind of start to go together, you know. We're doing this for each other. We're doing this as a community. We're doing this as members of a particular species at a particular moment in this wild and crazy experiment. I want to just close with a, a hopeful note. We have to remember that we are just a baby species. There were 100 million generations of dinosaurs, about 50 million generations of mammals before humans came along. We've had maybe 50, 100,000 generations of Homo sapiens, not that many even. We just got these big brains. We don't know how to use them real well yet. They didn't come with a good instruction manual. But just 2,500 years ago, which is a blink of an eye in any kind of deep time, biological times frame, we started to wake up. We had Socrates in Greece. We had Lao Tzu in China. We had the Buddha in India. People coming to a whole new kind of consciousness. And we're just, we're just starting to infuse the whole species. We're, we're, this is starting to be learned. So, there's hope. So, thank you for being part of our collective awakening. Let's sit for a moment. Here's the mystery. walking period for bipeds, so enjoy your walking. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.